basically how I explain what an evangelical is. Um, but here's another question, and maybe for some of this would hit you guys a little different. When I say the word evangelical, uh, what do you think of or what feelings does it inspire? When, um, or if somebody asked you what's an evangelical, I, I, I know that when people ask me, I often am careful at that point about how do I answer. Because I understand that through media, through social media, through television and things, sometimes people already have a picture of what an evangelical is. And to be honest, some people that I have talked to and run into uh, don't have a positive picture. So whenever I'm asked kind of what's an evangelical, sometimes I'm behind the eight ball a little bit or I'm, you know, I kind of want to know, all right, well, where, how is this conversation going to go? Some people think that as evangelicals, we're a political group, that, that we're known for our political stances or whatnot. Um, or they hear us associated with the white evangelicals in the U.S., uh, others, yeah, I, I don't know exactly, or, or they might, I, I don't know exactly where they have heard of what an evangelical is, so I wonder how much ground do I have to make up with them because of the public reputation of evangelicals. I know people in our denomination, I know young people particularly, who are wondering if we should just rebrand ourselves and get rid of the term evangelical. Now, I believe much of the public reputation of evangelicals, I believe a lot of it is kind of just slanderous. But I'm not sure if it all is. Like I, I, I'm not ignorant or naive to think that we don't have an enemy out there who would, who would slander any name, Christian, whatever. But I do believe some of our reputation is rightly earned. If we're known as a, if we're known for our politics, maybe we've allowed our political stances to eclipse our love of Jesus. If we're derided, for example, as hateful, maybe we have let those. Hateful voices speak loudly and haven't given enough of a rebuke. And if, it's, if we're called hypocrites, there is truth to that. There's some truth to that. And we can kind of talk about, well, what's the reason for this hypocrisy? And I, I think there's probably a lot of reasons. But as far as the evangelical movement in the United States and Canada as a whole, there may be even a theological reason for some of our hypocrisy and, and, and for that a gap. We've allowed a gap to enter into our faith and our theology, and, and because of that gap, we're not living biblically. Um, I would call it a, a sanctification gap. Evangelicals the, the, the very word kind of means evangel. It's from the word evangel, the gospel, right? And we, we're known as the people who evangelize, who tell people the good news about the gospel. Evangelicals put a big uh, focus and emphasis on conversion. Wow, something's going on there. We put a big focus and emphasis on conversion, looking, at, looking back at the called the past tense of salvation, right? Often, uh, at least when I was growing up, people would ask you, Hey, brother, when did you get saved? Right? And that word, get saved, pointing back to a moment when I went to a summer camp or a moment when I raised my hand at the, you know, in a, in an, uh, in a church service or the moment which I prayed a prayer and made a decision. 
And evangelicals, we've, been, we've, we've pushed that quite a bit, that there should be a time in your life when you have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ, that there was a time in your life where Jesus saved you. And we point back at this idea that, that Jesus has saved us from the penalty of our sin, that our sins are, are, have been completely forgiven in Jesus Christ. Uh, that's called the past, ten, or the, the past tense of salvation, our justification that Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin. And often, kind of in our churches, we, we put a big emphasis on that. In some of our movements, we've counted baptisms and counted conversions and made a big point of counting that. And then we, at times, often focus on the future tense, our, our, our home in heaven, right? Uh, when I was uh, in those early years of my Christian faith, we used to sing songs like, it was a, it's almost a ridiculous song, and I don't even know why it's scriptural, but do you know what I'm talking about? Some glad morning when my life is over, I'll fly away. I remember those songs being like the first songs that I was singing when I was a young Christian, this kind of idea that someday it'll all be over and I'll be with God in heaven. I think I'm a little bit more theologically sophisticated now. However, there still is this idea that I, as an evangelical, I focus on, I really want to share the gospel with people and bring them to this point where they might know Christ and be converted. And then I also, we have an emphasis on the eternal life that we'll have with Christ. However, today, and what, what I'm going to suggest is this gospel gap in our life is the second, this present tense of our sanctification where Jesus now in the present is saving us from the power of sin. And I suggest that for some of us, there's a gap here. We're wrestling with this. I remember in our churches, and we don't do this as much in our church. I don't know if we've done this. We usually sing all the verses. Uh, at least when I was uh, a younger Christian, I'd go to this church, we would sing the hymns. And it was interesting. We would, we'd always sing like the first, second, and fourth verse of the hymn. And I never even put the two and two together, but the first verse of many hymns is about our struggle with sin. And the second verse of many hymns is what Jesus has done to save us from our sin. And the fourth verse is always, and then we're in heaven, right? And I, I was in these, church, in these churches that I, was, you know, that I became a Christian in, and we would skip over often the third verse, but it was the third verse that always would speak about what God is doing in our lives right now. And that was kind of formative for me. And what Paul is doing here in this text we're going to be looking at in Philippians chapter 2 to 18 is Paul is actually not going to allow there to be a gap in our salvation. Right? In, in Philippians, he's talked about that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. But we, 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 would, we would be uh, very remiss if we overlooked the present, what God is doing in our life. And Paul's not going to let us overlook the present. And that's what he gets in as, as we look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12. This is the tense of salvation that we're looking at, where Paul is actually looking now at our sanctification. And he's going to speak of really two things, and then just at the end I'm going to bring in a third. He's going to speak of the process of our sanctification, our purpose, and then the joy that comes from it. I'll just read it again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I didn't run or vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, Heavenly Father, I pray that you just open up this word to us today and, and really speak to us about our ongoing present day walk with you. Spirit, may you meet us here. May you speak through my words. Uh, Spirit, may you speak to each one of our hearts. May you be working in and through our worship of you here today. And in your name we pray. Amen. So Paul's going to speak about the process of sanctification a little bit, and then he's going to speak about our purpose in our sancti- God's purpose in our sanctification. And he, and he speaks a bit about the process. And, and the process is basically this, the big idea for today, that we are in the present to be, as Christians, as children of God, we are to be working out what God is working in. Right? We are to be working at our salvation while God is at us. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling as God is at work in us. He writes in, in chapter uh, 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, here is the phrase we're just looking at you know, big time today. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You notice he starts out not by, um, he's not ragging on them. He's not, he's not piling on on them. He starts out with a, a, with a very encouraging word. He, before he gives this command to work out yourself, your own salvation with fear and trembling, he actually wants to remind them, you have already been doing this. Right? Work out your own salvation just as you have already always obeyed. He has seen in the Philippians in obedience as Christ has entered into their life, from, as, he, as he prayed for them in chapter 1, from the first day until now, I have been rejoicing with you of your partnership in the gospel. He has seen obedience in the Philippian church, and Paul has, has much to be encouraged about with their already started walk of sanctification. He is coming alongside them like a parent saying, you know, good job, keep going, like a coach who, who is trying to give them encouragement to say, you have already been doing this, now continue on. There's an encouraging affirmation from the beginning of this text, and so many times as parents or as pastors or as church members, you know, so many times it's very easy to be critical with one another. To look, up, to look at and to see what is lacking in one another or to be even critical of ourselves or what's you know, lacking in ourselves. And what Paul doesn't do here when he's talking about their sanctification, he's not just piling on them and trying to rag them down. He's actually very encouraging to them that he has already seen God do this work in them. And so he, he begins with the word of encouragement, and he also begins with the word, before he gets into his direction, with an 
understanding that it might get harder. He says, I have seen in you already that you have been obeying Christ. Up until now, this is what you've been doing, but you've been doing this while I've been with you. And now, as we know in Philippians, he's writing to a church where he says, I don't know if I'm going to be able to return to you. And so while you were obedient to Christ, while I saw and observed that obedience in you, while I was present with you, so much more now that you're going to possibly be on your own, I, my prayer is for you to continue in this walk of sanctification so I can continue to see this obedience to Christ, this overwhelming, overarching obedience to Christ. Now it might get harder. The rubber is now going to be hit, hitting the road. It, as such. While they were a young church, they leaned on the presence and the work of Paul, but Paul knew that in order for them to mature as a church, they must take all the more care to remain obedient to Christ in the absence of himself. Parents who have older kids, like maybe this has been, this probably I can't imagine, my kids aren't this age yet, but I can imagine that one of the great joys of being a parent would be to see your kids continuing in walking in the ways that you had sought to instill in them, not only when they are standing right in front of you, but when you're not there. Right? That's the, I think that's the hope of every parent, that the kids will continue to walk in their ways that they've laid down, not only when the kids are in the living room with you, but when the kids are in the college dorm. Or when the kids are you know, starting their own families. That's, that's what brings joy, as Paul, by the end of this chapter, says that is what's going to give me the greatest joy, is to see you continually to walk in the ways that I've laid down so that I know that my work in you wasn't in vain. Is what Paul actually says by the end here. And I want you to rejoice in, in, in me, and we can be rejoicing together in what God is doing. So Paul starts, before he even gets into this command, he, he wants to be very parental, in a sense, with us. He wants to be very parental with the Philippians, saying, listen, listen, I know you've been doing this. I've seen this in you. I know you can do it. I've seen it in you. Now that I'm not going to be with you, Keep on doing it and be even more careful, all the more, to go on and do this. And this is what brings Paul to his charge. And, and this is the, you know, the key phrase here. Therefore, my beloved, and notice that again, my beloved. The affection Paul has. Right? This parental affection he has for them. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. And here's his charge for that gap in their sanctification. He doesn't want there to be a gap. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. This is the charge. This is what Paul is longing to say to these Philippians that he may not see again. This is, this is what I want you to keep on doing. Keep on working out your salvation. What does this mean? Well, Paul's already spoken of salvation twice in this letter. Remember uh, at the beginning, oh, sorry, let me find it here. In the middle of chapter 1, 
Paul's actually speaking. He uses the same Greek word, the salvation. Our ESV translates it into deliverance. But he says, I will continue to rejoice, speaking about his time in prison. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit of Christ Jesus, this will turn out for my salvation. And we talked in that context where Paul was saying, I don't know if my salvation is going to come through my release from this prison cell or my salvation is actually going to become my ultimate salvation as I'm released from this life in death. And that's where he said it doesn't matter for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. But what Paul's doing there, he's actually saying, I know and I'm assured that my salvation is going to come. It's going to be aided by your prayers and through the help of the Holy Spirit, my salvation will await. I will receive that prize. But what Paul is also acknowledging is that salvation may, may actually come into the present through his deliverance from whatever this uh, circumstance or trial he's facing in prison. Later, later he says of the Philippians, the second use of salvation in uh, this chapter, in chapter 1, is he says to the Philippians, Remember, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come back to see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. So he's actually saying, your salvation is secured, but we will actually be able to see evidence of that in the here and now as you stand firm as you stand together, striving together in the gospel, and as you're not fearing. So for Paul in the book of Philippians, salvation is a future thing, but it can be actually uh, kind of experienced in the present. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, when he's saying, work out your salvation, what he's saying is to take from the future surety of your salvation and bring it into the present more and more. That's what it means to work out your salvation. Like we know, we who are children of God, who have come to Jesus Christ by faith, we have an assurance of eternity. We know that Christ Jesus will return someday to bring in his kingdom of righteousness, justice, and peace. And we long for that day and we pray, Maranatha, come Lord quickly. But until that day, what we do is we pray that that experience of righteousness, justice, peace, holiness, truth would be brought into our experience daily as Christians. This is why we pray in the Lord's Prayer as we do. Our Father coming collectively, standing before our Father God, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, meaning may your name be made great and magnified in our midst today. Not just may your name be great, made great when you return and set up your kingdom, but Father in heaven, may today your name be made great. Your kingdom, yes, we pray, your kingdom, yes, it will come. But even now your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is where the Lord's Prayer, in a sense, directs our sanctification. The Lord's Prayer is a sanctifying prayer because the Lord's Prayer, if you're praying the Lord's Prayer every morning before you go to school, every morning before you go to work, as you're going through the day, you're praying the Lord's Prayer, you are praying to be sanctified. You're praying that your salvation, which is a future hope, will be worked out in the present experience of the day. And you're working out that salvation 
And you're working out with fear and trembling. With awe and with reverence, I believe the NET Bible calls it. The, the, the idea here is, this is humbling even to be in church. And I'm looking out at your faces today, and do you know what we are touching when we are coming into the presence of God? Like, do I really understand? I don't, I'm not sure I do. If we understand that we are not just playing with little matches, but we are standing in front of our God who's a consuming fire, that everything good that I, and joyful and beautiful that I've ever experienced in my whole life up until this moment is nothing compared to the overwhelming awe of the God with whom someday I will come face to face. Have you ever stood before an ocean and seen the crashing waves? Once uh, Jean and I, we were um, in Japan, we were in Ehime, I think it was Ehime province, um, and we went to go see the ocean. Kochi? Kochi. I get a human Kochi confused. We went to go see the ocean, and there was a storm. And the waves, I just remember, the waves were terrifying. <laughs> right? Remember, we'd run, and they'd come, and we'd run away. <laughs> and have you ever stood at the ocean and see the, see the waves crashing, and you just stand in awe of the power and the beauty and the might and the danger? And yet we have something far more powerful, terrible, awe-inspiring at our fingertips in the presence of God in our midst. And that in heaven, in, 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 as Jesus returns to bring in his new kingdom, we are actually going to live. The presence of God is going to be with us. The kingdom of God will become the kingdoms of this world. We somehow, through Jesus Christ, we will not be destroyed because of what he has done on our behalf. This is why if, if Jesus is not shielding us, if, if we are not positionally found in him and his righteousness, this is why we will be destroyed when we enter in to the presence of God. We will, the only thing we could say is fall down on our knees and say, woe to us for we are ruined as Isaiah did when he came into the presence of God in Isaiah 6. And yet, for somehow, it's not only that we're going to enter into God's presence once, it's that we're going to remain in and dwell with Him for eternity, forever. This is an awe-inspiring thing. And so what Paul is actually saying here is, that is the thing that you are touching when you are touching heaven. That is the thing that you are coming into presence with when, when, when God is in your midst. And when you work out your salvation, when you take from that future reality of, of living in kingdom come, you bring it into your life. This is why you must treat this with the awe and the reverence it deserves. Have you ever, I, I can just imagine, I don't, I've never been a waiter or a waitress, well, obviously, I've never been a waiter, um, but can you imagine if you were a waiter and you had on your, on your what's that call, thing called? I don't know what that thing is called, your tray? I feel like it should have a better name. Imagine having, you know, priceless china on your tray. 
And imagine now doing your job as the waiter. I can only imagine how carefully I would, I would, how careful I would be. I could only imagine how every step, I mean, right now I'm walking back. I would not do that. I would want to look. The idea that we're, we're, we're holding something of great value. We're holding something of great value. And so what, what Paul's actually saying is this is, you bring that thing of great value, your salvation, and you bring it into your daily life, and, and this requires care. It requires us to not be distracted, but, but with, with all that we have in us to work this out, to, to work it into our lives, this, this salvation. And so we must be careful for how we build and take care of how we live. But it's not legalism. It's not legalism. He's not actually saying that this energy comes from us. He actually says, goes on to say, he has this great balance here in this text. Continue now to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then he assures us that it is God who actually is doing this work, this work in us for us to work it out. God works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And, and, and so while we are in this text, this is an imperative to us. It's a command to us, the church, to go on working out our salvation, bringing the future reality of our salvation into the present. But we don't do this in our own strength. We do this in the strength that God supplies. Not only in the strength that he supplies, but even our desire to do it comes from him. And this is this mystery of our sanctification that, that to be honest, it, 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 it is a paradox I don't think we can understand. I don't think we can explain it, but I do want to uh, point out that, that there are faulty ways that, that we think about this. Well, what, what this verse is saying, that it, it, it is God 100% working in us and us 100% working salvation out. And I want to kind of point out some false understandings of sanctification. Can they all kind of they all kind of fall in the same heading? A lot of us kind of think of sanctification of our ongoing walk with Christ in ways in which we understand it to be like we do some of it and God does some of it. Like maybe we do 50%, God is 50%. Or maybe we're more humble. We do 20% and God is 80%. That's not what Paul's teaching here. But I'll show you a couple of th- ways that I used to think or that, that you may think. Uh, the first way would be God does the initial work to save you, and then you've got to do all the work to kind of keep yourself saved. Right? God does the initial work to save you, but you've you got to do that work to keep yourself. It's like, it's like God drags you out of a pit, but then you've got to walk home. Okay? So God does the initial work, and then we, we kind of keep on going. This is, this is kind of what Paul's saying to the Galatians when he says, you know, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And so some of you think of your sanctification as in, well, God did the work to save me, but if I mess up, if I don't keep on moving, then I might somehow ruin it. Right? I'm, I, I could somehow mess this up. God dragged me out of the pit, but I've got to walk to heaven. Another kind of false understanding of sanctification that we have is this, that we do everything that we can to save ourselves and that God brings us home. 
It's like we try really, really hard to do everything God commands, but we know we're going to fail. And then God's like, all right, son, you, you, I guess you gave it your shot. And then he takes us the rest of the way. This was, um, there was a teacher named Beale who taught Martin Luther. And this was actually his kind of theology that Luther then rejected. But this idea that we do everything that we can, right? We do everything we can to follow God's ways. But then God is like, you know what? You're not going to do it all the way and I'll help you out. And he'll take us the rest of the way. This was literally how I thought before I became a Christian. Before I became a Christian, this is how I thought God worked. It was like God makes these demands upon us. God says, thou shalt do this, or God, thou shalt not do this. And I thought, so God wants us to try as hard as we can to do what he says to do. But he also knows, you know, we're not going to quite cut it. So if we try really hard and do everything we can, then God's going to be like, okay, you tried hard. I'll bring you the rest of the way and let you into heaven. Now, the, the, the funny part was I wasn't even trying that hard. Right? Like, if you ask me, are you trying everything you can to follow God's laws? I'd have been like, okay, well, no. Like, I'm not. But that's the way I thought, is that if you're just a good person, you know, you don't rob a bank or kill someone, you're trying hard to be a good person, be nice to people, and then God will say, you know what, you did the rest of the way. So we try to live a good life, try not to do anything too bad, and then God will help those who help himself. That's not what Paul's speaking of either. Paul is speaking of this mystery that God is actually working his purposes in us. God's actually giving us both the desire for holiness and he's actually working in his holiness in us. But that doesn't make us passive. We are actively working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And you say, well, I don't understand this. And I don't. I mean, sometimes, I, I know the youth, you guys had tons of discussions like for like years about this. How can something be both 100% what God is doing and yet what we're doing? I often put it this way with people. This is my apologetic with this. I always say, if God is higher than you are, if his ways are not your ways, and it, you, I say it like this to sometimes with people. I say, is God smarter than you are? Is God capable of knowing things that you are not capable of knowing? Like, I, I would say if God is all-knowing, I could give him that. He, could you at least grant that God maybe in one area could understand something that your human brain is not capable of understanding? I suggest that to people. And then I say, if, if you can think that God's ways are actually higher than you, if you can grant that, and usually people say they can grant that, then I say that God may be able to do one thing that's beyond our human understanding. And can I suggest that one thing that God does, it seems again and again in Scripture, is that God is able to do something. God has created humanity in such a way, he's created the universe in such a way that he can be the ultimate cause of an action, and we can be the instrumental cause of an action, and those two things are not in contradiction to each other. Okay? I don't understand how that can be, how something can have two causes. But I can understand that God is an ultimate cause and that we can be the instrumental cause. So take this, for example, who wrote the Bible? What do we understand about who wrote the Bible? We believe the Bible is fully inspired by the Holy Spirit. That is right to say the Bible is God's word. God is the ultimate cause and he is the author of the scriptures. Yet it's also appropriate to say who wrote the Bible? Well, Paul and James and John and Luke 
Okay? God is able somehow to be, something is able to be fully 100% God's activity and, and yet our activity. What about, what about even the person of Christ? This is called the hypostatic union. He's able to be fully 100% God and yet he has assumed humanity upon himself. What about our justification? Justification is fully the work of God, fully the work of God, yet it is also instrumentally by faith alone. Okay, so, so somehow God has created the, God has created us in a way that we can't understand. And our sanctification, what this means is, our sanctification is that God works in us and then we work our salvation out with fear and trembling. It's not deterministic, it's not robotic, but it's not man-centered and it's not chaotic. It is assured because it's God's working in us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. So our understanding the process of salvation, sanctification, sorry, understanding the process of sanctification is that God works in, what God, or we work out what God is working in us. And I just want to speak quickly about the purpose of our sanctification. The purpose of our sanctification, as he says, is that we might stand out from the world. Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may, so this is it, so that, that you may be blameless and innocent Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. See, this is the purpose for which the command to work out our salvation with fear and trembling is given. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, recognizing that it's God who works in us so that we may do what sadly sometimes we as Christians are not doing right now. So that we might shine out, that, that God's light might actually shine through us even as the generation around us becomes more and more spiritually dark, wicked, and perverse. That, that there may actually be a distinction in us as we, are, as we are looking to heaven and taking from that future surety to heaven and working it out in the day to day. Our lives should and must stand out. What he's saying here, there's an allusion here to the journey of the children of Israel. When the children of Israel, they understand when the children of Israel left Egypt, right? They left Egypt, they were, they were saved in a sense by virtue of a Passover lamb dying in the substitution of their firstborn. They were redeemed through the Passover lamb's blood. They were brought out, if you will, through the waters of baptism, through the parting of the Red, Red Sea. And then they were being led to the promised land where they would settle and it would be their home. But it's not as though they left Egypt or left Egypt and suddenly were in Canaan. There was this process of wandering, of journeying, and, and that paradigm is often given to us in Scripture as, uh, as an allusion to our walk of faith. And Paul actually alludes to it here, first by saying, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Now that's just two things, but you know that that characterized the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness. But the real allusion is this, in, in verse 15. He says, do all things that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Where does he get those words from? He gets those words from Moses' prayer in Deuteronomy, where Moses is actually saying to the Israelites, you have continually failed in your journey of sanctification, and you will, as you enter the land, even continue to fail. 
It's not as though God was unfaithful. He says in Deuteronomy 32, 4, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Then he speaks of Israel saying they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. So do you see what Paul's doing in Philippians? Paul's actually saying you are on the same journey of sanctification that, Paul, that God had called Israel to. But he's actually saying now, I have seen the obedience that God has already been working in you. I'm confident that he who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. But what, I'm, what, what Paul's calling them to do is then take from that future reality, take from that promised land reality, and bring it into the present more and more as God is working that into your life so that you may succeed and do what Israel did not. So that you may do what Israel did not. So that instead of you being the wicked and perverse generation, you may stand out from the wicked and perverse generation. Instead of you being a blemished child, you might be a child of a heavenly father standing without blemish. And so this is Paul's purpose for what he's giving us as our purpose for our sanctification. That we might do all things working at our salvation without grumbling or complaining, not like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, but that we might be set apart for God. And Paul then says, this is what's going to give me so much joy. So when I see you holding fast to the word of life, that day, in the day of Christ, when, when, we, when we reach the end of our journey, and Christ returns and brings in his kingdom of righteousness, justice, and peace, I may be proud that I didn't labor among you in vain. That I might actually see that God has indeed done what he has promised to do, take you all the way We'll look at verse 17 a little bit more next week. But at the end he says, even if, even if it means my death, is what he's saying. Even if I die in the service, I will be glad and rejoice with you all. And I want you to rejoice in me. See, this is, this is the joy of sanctification. That we actually can be rejoicing as, as we're seeing one another and as we're participating in one another on our journey to kingdom come and we're seeing each of us making advancements in the faith and standing apart from this world. That is the joy. It brings joy to us. It brings joy to others when they see the joy of us standing in sanctification. I just want to finish with two final thoughts for us. Just kind of implications. What does this mean for us? Well, the first big idea that this means for us in our church and what it means for you, particularly individually, is this. Your sanctification is not a passive reality. It's an active participation. All right? Your sanctification, your ongoing spiritual growth and walk toward maturity is not something where Jesus is just driving the bus and we're sitting in the back seat and he just drives us. We are actively participating in our sanctification. That is not to say that we do it. It is God working in us to do it. Again, that paradox. But this does mean, Christian and brothers and sisters, beloved of God, it does mean that you are an active participant in your sanctification. It means the habits that you pursue. It means the friendships that you pursue. It means the mentors that you pursue. It means coming together, joining with us in the community of faith, hearing the word of God, 
participating with one another in each other's lives, spurring each other on to love and good works. These are all active things that we do as Christians. Not out of our own strength, not even out of our own will. And that comes to the second thing. If you have not the strength and you have not the will, that's the start of a good prayer for you. Father, give me the strength and give me the will. I was thinking about Psalm 51. Psalm 51, the psalm of David, a man after God's own heart. But yes, David also a man who walked far from the path of sanctification. And that Psalm 51 is his psalm of repentance. And as he returns to God, he, you know, as he, I can just imagine, as you return to God after having fallen in that sense, where do you even start? Have you ever thought about that? David had committed adultery and murdered someone. Where would you even start in the process of picking up where you had left off in that walk of sanctification? Well, he starts a number of ways. He starts by repenting. He starts by confessing his sin. And then Psalm 51, verses 10. I love this. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me and restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. That's a great place to start. To come before your God, that holy God, that awe-inspiring God, to stand before Him, acknowledging your sin in front of Him. Acknowledging all the ways in which you have strayed from His command and walked away from His path. To acknowledge God before you, I am a sinner and I have sinned and I am in need of your grace and forgiveness. And lead me, God. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right, other translations would have, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Don't remove your spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. There may be people here today that need to pray Psalm 51, verses 10 to 12 for themselves. Maybe you have wandered Maybe you have grown listless or passive in your pursuit of sanctification. Maybe you have reduced the Christian life to a religious ritual rather than standing in front of this awe-inspiring God. I know I've done it. And so can we return to God? Can we return to God once again to His grace to his power, to his will working in and through us. Can we get to pray? Create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Give me the joy of my salvation and that we might walk in him as active participants in this salvation that he has granted us. Heavenly Father, I would pray, and there may be others here who need to just take time today sitting before you and praying out to you, calling out to you, God, we need you. Lord, we recognize it is not by our goodness. It is not by our walk. It is not by our work. It is not by the things that we have done. It is not by our righteousness. Praise be to Jesus Christ. 
It is from, through, through him, through his work, through his activity, through his action, through his salvation, through what he has done, the pain that he has done in laying down his life. The tears that he shed, the blood that he spilled. And Heavenly Father, we know and we come to you now and we, I pray for anyone in here today, they may pray this prayer, I repent. I confess my listlessness. I confess my passivity. I confess my zero desire to continue to walk. And God, may we pray this prayer of David, create in us a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within us. Don't take us away from your Holy Spirit and don't cast us away from your presence, but renew us, Lord. Renew us.